Our lesson today is from Luke 10, 17 to 24. Luke 10, 17 to 24. We have two paragraphs here, two sections. The first one is verses 17 to 20, and then 21 to 24. Let's read the first one. The first one, And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In the previous passage, the Lord has sent out the 70 with the commission to preach the kingdom of God, that is the gospel. He gave them power also over diseases and unclean spirits. And now here, when they return, we see in verse 17, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They properly returned with joy, but they seem to be amazed. They seem to be amazed, even though they had seen these kinds of activities before. They had witnessed them when Jesus performed exorcisms. They saw that, but in this case, likely they experienced it for the first time. Though they saw it from Christ's hand, now they, it, this was happening by their own hand, and so they returned with joy and they announced this fact that even the demons are subject to us in your name. This teaches us that it's often the case with all of us that it's easy to give assent and belief to things that are said. When the Word of God is preached, it's easy for us to say, yes, that's what it says, that's right, that's, that's good. But it's harder sometimes when something good happens to understand the full implications of what was said so that we should not be surprised when we actually experience it. And in the same way when evil happens. The Bible warns us of persecution and afflictions, but when they actually happen, then we get jolted and then we get further conviction about what the Bible says about our afflictions. This is human nature. It's easy to hear it and see it, but then it's harder to have that full impact of the Word of God, just believing it on its, uh, at face value. Believe whatever it says, whether on blessings or cursings, believe what it says and go and live our life accordingly. But our faith and in joy and everything needs to be constantly buttressed by experience because we are dull. We are dull and we're lazy and we don't see it plainly when God first tells us. And this is what experience they had right, right here. The demons, they are amazed that the demons are subject to them in the name of Christ. As well, we note that these demons were real. They were not dealing with fiction. They're not dealing with any kind of myth. Demons are real. They recognize that from personal experience that they were malicious creatures set out to destroy mankind, set out to bring about misery and destruction to people. They knew that and they saw that and then they saw deliverance from that. This reminds us too that we're not fighting just a, a war of flesh and blood. We're not fighting against men merely men as physical beings. There's an unseen world that we are always waging war against. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5.8 tells us. But then also, they were subject in the name of Christ. Not in the name of the disciples, not in the name of false gods, not in the name of another prophet from another religion, a false prophet from another religion, nothing like that, but they are subject to the name of Christ, in the name of Christ, because Christ has authority. He has authority over all creation because he's the creator of all creation. Colossians 1, 16, uh, 15 and 16 tells us that he is the creator of all creation and even principalities and powers, the unseen realm, Christ is Lord and authority over them. So only in the name of the Lord can we have victory over the devil's world. Only in the name of the Lord can we have that victory. Jesus confirms their statement in verse 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He was watching the fall of Satan. It's likely that he's not necessarily talking about the original fall of Satan, nor exclusively the final fall of Satan, when the Lord returns and the devil and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. Not necessarily, but he is seeing in a panoramic way all of history from the beginning of Satan's fall to the end of Satan's fall, that he is falling and he's constantly falling and constantly having to, um, in his fall, he is being defeated time and time again. And this was one such defeat when the disciples, the 70 went out and defeated him in their battle with the demons. He was watching Satan fall from heaven. And it says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Will soon crush him under your feet. And 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, verse 3 says, And do you not know that we shall judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, we'll judge the world and we will judge angels. And when we judge angels on the day of judgment, alongside the Lord Jesus, Satan is included there. So he will be crushed by God by means of our judgment on him on the day of judgment. Then 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Here is a reminder that the authority that they received to do what they did came from Christ. In the name of Christ and by the authority of Christ, they went out to do what, what they did. It wasn't based on themselves. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Anything we have, any ability we have, even supernatural ability, comes from God to overcome the, the wiles of the devil. Here, the demons and the devil are called serpents and scorpions because these are poisonous creatures. Spiritually, this is embedded in the devil and the demons. They are poisonous. Nothing they do is good and right. Even when they have a bit of truth, they don't use that bit of truth for the right reasons. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? They said the truth there. But was it good? Was it necessary? No, they didn't repent. They said the truth, but they didn't repent. And saying the truth without repentance is useless. 
It only confirms the judgment on wicked people and the demons that they know the truth but don't repent of it. And so we have to, whenever we think of the, the things of the devil, the ways of the devil, think of him as a poisonous spiritual creature. Don't ever play with the devil and his demons. Don't ever play with them. Don't ever deny his existence because if you deny his existence and he's a real poisonous creature, who's in jeopardy? The one who denies his existence because he's going to live his life as though the devil does not exist and then be poisoned by him. Verse 20, all that is good that they experienced. They experienced in that setting a defeat of the devil. But, verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Verse 17, they returned with joy. When he says, do not rejoice in this, what he means is, don't go giddy on this. Yes, it's good to be joyful, but don't go giddy and fanatical on this and lose focus. That's what he means by this, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Instead of being joyful over what you just experienced, victory over the demons, you should rather consider that you are saved from your sins, that your names are in the book of life, the book of, uh, of the Lamb in heaven, that that's where your ultimate and eternal residence is. This reminds us of Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is the thing that Jesus is teaching in Luke. He's teaching them that, yes, I gave you authority and you did a good deed by casting out demons. And you should rejoice in that. But you shouldn't put your hope in that. Don't lose focus. Don't be so fanatical in thinking about that that you're not realizing that you need to be saved from your sins. They were saved, but they needed to consider that fact above their miraculous powers. They needed to consider the fact that they truly had their names recorded in heaven. As Jesus says here, there will be people on the day of judgment who call him Lord, but they won't get into heaven. And they had performed many miracles. They prophesied, they cast out demons, and performed many miracles in the name of Christ. Yet, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Their names were not recorded, though they had miraculous powers. I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's what we should really focus on all the time. Whatever good things God does through us, whether it's casting out demons or anything else, there is a place to rejoice in that, but ultimately it should drive us to consider whether we are redeemed, whether our names are recorded in heaven, whether we are a child of God. That's more important that we belong to Him and that He knows us, because it says, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Do we know him properly? And does he know us? Does he know us as his adopted children?
That's where the focus always should be. Not on the show, not on the miraculous, not, not on the personalities, nothing like that. It should be on salvation. Our next section is verses 21 to 24. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. It says in, in verse 21, At that very time, at that very time, the time when these 70 returned with their report, and Jesus explains the proper view of that experience, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. What he's rejoicing in, in this case, has to do with how it is anybody's name is recorded in heaven. The connection with the previous passage is, how is it that somebody's name is recorded in heaven? And Jesus explains, especially in verses 21 to 22, how that happens. It happens by the sovereign will of the Son of God. The sovereign will of the Son of God. Not the sovereign will of man. Not the good will of man, not the free will of man, but the sovereign will, the sovereign free will of the Son of God. That's how it happens. Firstly, verse 21. What he's saying, he is now rejoicing in. Notice, he rejoiced greatly. The disciples rejoiced in their powers. Jesus says, rejoice that you are saved. Your names are in heaven. And then he rejoices in the way that they get saved. Greatly rejoices in the way that they get saved. He greatly rejoices in the way because he knows it happens by his will. That's why he greatly rejoices. And to avoid any obscurities, any doubt, it says, in the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is about to say, just on the surface of it, a superficial reading of it, a skeptic of the Bible would say, why would Jesus rejoice in that? That's wrong. Jesus should be rejoicing that everybody gets saved, not just that some get saved, but that everybody gets saved. He should rejoice and hope for that. But to offset that, to prevent that kind of critical thought against Christ, the Holy Spirit, by Luke, says that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. So what he's about to say is truth, it's sinless, it's perfect, it's good, it's righteous, everything in the Holy Spirit. And if we are in the Holy Spirit, we will rejoice the way Jesus does about this truth. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He came to glorify the Father. John 17 explains that. To glorify himself and the Father. And we know that on the day of judgment, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, when he sees a glimpse of that glory, what does Jesus do? He praises the Father. He praises the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, the Creator. If we ask who created the world, there are three correct answers. Basically, it's one correct answer. That is, the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world. Our God, our, the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, created the world. He acknowledges that fact so that the creator of the world is able to dictate and govern the way his world runs. That's why he praises the Father. He doesn't just do that arbitrarily. He praises the Father as the creator because here the creator is also the redeemer or the creator chooses the means of redemption. That's what he's saying here. He praises him as Lord of heaven and earth. Here too we, we might see that Jesus calls the Father Lord, but Jesus is also called Lord. Even in the book of Luke, he is called Lord. Um, and, and so when the Bible addresses God, it addresses the Father as God, the Son as God, the Spirit as God, and it addresses the Father as Lord, the Son as Lord, and the Holy Spirit as Lord. The Holy Spirit is called Lord in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. So, then he says, why he praises him, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent. From the wise and intelligent. God hid the truths of the gospel from the wise and the intelligent. God prevented the wise and, the, and intelligent from having their names recorded in heaven. God did not permit that. God did not choose for that to happen. He intentionally hid these truths from the wise and intelligent. When he says the wise and intelligent, he's talking about those who are carnally or worldly wise. That's what he means. He's not talking about those who are truly wise in the sense the Bible understands it, the sense that they have wisdom from God, but these people are worldly wise, such as is said in 1 Corinthians. A study of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 3 would reveal this point that Paul makes again and again in that section. Example, in chapter 1, Chapter 1, verse 20. Actually, let's start at 118. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul the Apostle is using irony here. He's using irony in saying that God's wisdom is foolishness, but God's foolishness destroys the world's wisdom. That's what he's saying. The cross of Christ destroys their wisdom. And one more place is chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. And so forth. That's what Jesus means. There were scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots, people who thought they were wise based on what they knew, based on their power, based on their wealth. They thought they were wise, but they were actually fools. So God hid the truths of the gospel from the worldly wise and instead revealed them to babes or infants. He revealed them to those who would consider themselves like little children, humble and teachable, innocent little children. Those who would come to that point, come down to that level and behave like a child, here Jesus calls them infants. This is similar to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 1 to 6. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus takes a child to illustrate the fact that we have to become like a child, humble ourselves like a child is, before we can be exalted, for God to receive us. And verse 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned into the depth of the sea. The little ones who believe in me, he's talking about believers. He's not talking about infants in the sense of a newborn baby. When the Bible says babes or infants, it's not talking about newborn babies who believe in him go to heaven. It's talking about people who are aware enough to believe and repent of their sins who behave like an innocent child, who behave like a humble child that is completely dependent upon its parents to have any nourishment and guidance. So Jesus says, Luke 10, 21, Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. God is well-pleased. He's extremely pleased 
to do it this way. He's extremely pleased to do it this way because God is in the business of demoting man and glorifying him. He promotes his name and demotes our name. As John the Baptist understood, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God is always well pleased to do that. He's always doing that. As we read in 1 Corinthians, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, and that's what he's saying right here in our verse. Then, the sovereignty of God, part of it. Verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, now who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. All authority is in the hand of Christ. The Father put everything in the hand of Christ. And Christ says, No one knows who the Son is except the Father. In the full and complete sense, no one knows who the Son of God is but the Father. And also the reverse. And who the Father is except the Son. The infinite, immense nature of the Father, no one understands that. No one comprehends it except the Son. Only the Son. By way of clarification, the Bible doesn't explain the Trinity in every verse. The Bible does not explain the Trinity in every verse. By implication, he is not excluding the Holy Spirit. He's not doing that. He's just emphasizing this special relationship between the Father and the Son without the exclusion of the Holy Spirit. I say that because 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul will tell us something similar to this by referencing the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. How is it that someone, now somebody gets the wisdom of God and gives up the wisdom of the world. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 9, that it happens by the predestination of God. But who is it, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, who does the revealing? Verse 10 explains. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. The Apostle tells us that it is the Spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God. That's similar to what Jesus said in Luke 10.22 about himself and the Father. Now here he's saying that the Spirit knows all that. All that the Father knows, the Spirit knows. And the Spirit is the one who deals out and measures out some of that knowledge to us. The Apostle did not intend to exclude the Son of God. He's merely establishing the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. And the Spirit's work in us. In Jesus' case, he's going to the relationship between himself and the Father to explain how is it that even the Spirit is commissioned and sent out to convert somebody. 
And that's in our verse right here, Luke 10, 22. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. How does anyone come to know God the Father? If the Son wills to reveal the Father, the Son will send the Spirit to change us and to give us comprehension to understand who the Son is. And if we understand who the Son is, we'll understand who the Father is. This is a, a completely harmonious relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, this is how we are redeemed. We're not redeemed by the will of man. We're not re redeemed by any kind of um, ingenuity that we have, any kind of wisdom we have, any kind of power we have, any kind of riches we have. We're only redeemed because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are cooperating and working to save us from our sins. If they will so. If they will so, it will happen so. If they don't will so, it will not happen. We note nothing here is about the will of man. Everything is about the will of God. The will of the Son to reveal the Father to whoever He wants. Verse 23. Now some examples of how this has been revealed. Verse 23. And turning to the disciples, He said privately. Now He turns aside and says privately to them, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Verse 23, when he turns to his disciples to speak privately, this is to the exclusion of the crowds. Exclusion of the crowds, the multitudes. The multitudes, they see things with their visible, physical eyes. They see things with their eyes. But the multitudes don't see things spiritually, with spiritual eyes. The multitudes see things with physical eyes, but not spiritual eyes. Here he says, Blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see. Now his own disciples, what does he mean by that? His own disciples not only see the physical things, the miracles, they also see the spiritual things. The smaller group of disciples, they see it both ways. They see it physically and spiritually. And then a third group in verse 24. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What did the many prophets and kings wish to see? What they saw spiritually in ancient times, in the Old Testament, what they saw spiritually, they longed to see physically, like the multitudes. And they wanted to be just like Jesus' disciples, who saw it both ways. Now, of these three categories, which is the most blessed category in terms of experience? we would say it's the middle group, that is the group of the private disciples, according to this passage, because they see physically and spiritually. The second best group, the prophets and the kings, who wish to see it physically, but they saw it spiritually and were saved. 
And which is the miserable group? The first group. The multitudes who see it physically, but they have no concern and no embrace of the spiritual. That's the group none of us should be in. None of us should ever be in that group of the multitudes who see the physical and it does not draw them to the spiritual. Never should we be like that. And also, in our case, we are in the group of the prophets and kings because we don't day by day have Jesus walking in our midst and we don't see him preaching and we don't see him healing. We don't see that. So we are just like the prophets and the kings. We are in that blessed category. And it's not a lesser category compared to the multitudes. It's the blessed category. We should rejoice in that. Matthew, uh, yes, Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 10 to 17. Jesus expands on this in that passage. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. After Jesus announced the parable of the sower, seed, and soils, he has an explanation um, as to why he says these things to the crowds. Verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples ask him the question, why do you speak to them, the crowds, the multitudes, in parables? Why don't you just say it openly and plainly? Why is it that you use these figures of speech? Because if you use figures of speech, then it puts an additional barrier between you, the meaning of your words, and the comprehension of your hearers. Why not just say it openly and plainly? Say it straightforwardly. That's their question. And Jesus' answer, verse 11, is to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. It has been granted is just like what we read in Luke 10, Luke 10, 21 to 22. It was granted because the Father and the Son and the Spirit granted it to the disciples privately, to the small group of disciples, not to the large group. And then he says about the large group, verse 12, that they hear things, but because there is no effect, there is no produce, there is no fruit in their life, what they know and understand, it will be taken away from them. It will not help them 
And because there's no fruit in their life, he will take away this or that knowledge away from them. And elsewhere in Matthew 25, he says, he's going to give it to others and they will receive a reward. Then 13 to 15, Isaiah preached this kind of predestination too. And he quotes Isaiah to prove that. Then verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. That's the disciples because they see physically and spiritually. And then the prophets, verse 17, they saw spiritually but not physically. Another point of clarification is this passage will show Matthew 10 and Luke, uh, sorry, Matthew 13 and Luke 10 show that the prophets, kings, and wise men who were believers in the Old Testament, they believed in the gospel of Christ because they were taught the gospel of Christ. They didn't see it with their eyes physically, but they saw it with their eyes spiritually. That's why they wished to see it physically. Why would they wish for something or desire something that they didn't know anything about? They certainly knew about it, and that's why they longed to see it, the day when Jesus walked on the earth. And lastly, we often hear when pastors use illustrations, they use illustrations, personal anecdotes, they use jokes, they use whatever they want. They say, well, Jesus used parables. Have we heard that before? I think we've heard that many times. Well, Jesus used parables to illustrate. So I, as a pastor, I illustrate by these means. The problem is, Jesus did not use parables for clarification, but for cloudiness. He didn't use it for clarification, but to make it murky and cloudy for the crowds. The big church pastors, the mega church pastors, use illustrations and jokes and personal anecdotes, quotes from this or that, person, modern person, old, uh, you know, old writer, historian, whatever, they use them in order to prop up their message and in order to um, tickle the ears of their hearers. And in order to say, they say, well, we want them to understand. Of course, we want them to understand. Just like Jesus wanted them to understand. That's why he used parables. But Jesus says in both Matthew and Luke that that's not the purpose of parables. The purpose of parables is to make it cloudy so that it depends on the Spirit of God to make it clear. And when it depends on the Spirit of God to make it clear, who receives the glory? God. Not the preacher and not the hearer, but God. And that's why he's praised. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. That's when God receives glory. And also, when was the last time a megachurch preacher was treated the way Jesus was treated when they announced their illustration? When was the last time? For example, after Jesus announces an illustration or a parable and quotes the Old Testament, it says here in Luke 19, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. So he was preaching, and mixed with his preaching was 
parabolic preaching, and he aimed it at the leaders, the authorities, and that's why they wanted to destroy him. Another example, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone, Jesus says, after announcing the parable of the vine growers, and then everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Then it says, this is Luke 20, Luke 29 to 19. And then in verse 19, after he announces this parable, quotes the Old Testament from Psalm 118, and then uses another figure of speech, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The reaction, verse 19, Luke 20, 19, and the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Who today illustrates so that the hearers intentionally, with the intention that the hearers rise up against him and want to put him to death? Nobody does that. Yet we're told that that's the purpose of parables. That's not the purpose of parables. That's not the purpose of illustrations. The purpose of, of the modern illustration is to prop up the preacher so that more people come and more money comes into the coffers of the church. That's all that it is. It's not about truth. It's not about the gospel. It's about the preacher and stroking the pride of the people. So, let's rejoice in our salvation and rejoice that God's sovereignty brings us into salvation and all the glory goes to Him. By the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's how our salvation comes about. Not by gimmicks and tricks of men. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.